Most of you know this is, this is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday that we celebrate the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Uh, it has been called through history his triumphant entry. And yet the triumph, uh, as far as the culture was concerned, was very short-lived, as we'll talk this morning. And you know, when you approach Palm Sunday and, and Easter or Resurrection Sunday, even though every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, but Easter itself... You know, preachers, if you've been preaching for very long, you kind of struggle because how many different messages can you preach on Palm Sunday and not just become incredibly repetitive? Uh, How many messages can you preach on Resurrection Sunday and just not retrace the same ground? And yet at the same time, the facts are facts. Uh, Facts are stubborn things and they're liberating. Uh, Jesus says the truth will set you free. And so we need to know, but today's message, I hope, will take a look at Palm Sunday, maybe in a way that you haven't either looked at it before or recently, or the angle at which we're going to discuss it. I want to preach a message today entitled, Not the Messiah They Wanted. Now that would seem kind of antithetical to Palm Sunday itself. Because remember what's happening there, waving palm branches, throwing out their clothing for Jesus to ride across, and they're yelling Hosanna. In fact, let's just read one of the common uh, accounts. This is one of the moments in the life of Jesus that all four of the gospel authors record. Now, each one kind of focuses on a different thing. I've chosen to use Matthew's account, and we'll refer to some of the other passages, but I'm going to kind of stick with Matthew because it is Matthew in his entire gospel account that presents Jesus as the king, as the Messiah. That's his theme. That's his thesis. He is trying to write his account to show that Jesus is the king that all of Israel had been looking for, praying for, longing for. So we're going to stick with Matthew. I want to read this passage to you just simply so we can kind of get it uh, out into the air here. This is in Matthew 21, the first nine verses. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Zechariah, of course, Zechariah chapter 9. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One that had never been ridden. If you don't think Jesus was a man, you try doing that. You try riding a colt that hasn't been ridden yet. That's a trip. you talking about a rodeo. You're going to have one. But I think that little donkey knew when the creator of the universe touched his back. The cargo that he was carrying that day. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees, thus the palm leaves, and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
They're actually quoting out of the book of Psalms. They knew their Old Testaments. They were orthodox. It is possible to know all the right things and yet to make the wrong decision. It is possible to be so orthodox that you're as straight as a shotgun barrel but be just as empty. It is possible to be right and wrong at the same time. Now let me see if I can illustrate what I mean by that. I don't have time to go into all the history this morning. Paul has done that adequately through the years. I'm, I'm constantly awed, and I mean this literally as a, as a friend. Awed is his knowledge of the Old Testament and the history surrounding it. But you know that the time has come for the sacrificial lambs to be brought into Jerusalem to be offered during Passover. It's not coincidental that Jesus chooses the same time to enter into Jerusalem because He is the great Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist said that. And He enters in. The Jews had been looking for their King to come. They are tired of being subjugated by the Romans. They read the Old Testament. They interpret everything as literal. Now, the Bible is literal, but there are spiritual meanings attached to many things, and sometimes we miss the timing. But what they wanted was not what Jesus came to provide. They wanted an earthly kingdom. They wanted the power. They wanted to rule. They wanted their Messiah to put down not only the Roman government, but every government. Lift Israel up as the paramount pinnacle of human existence and culture and government and rightfully rule as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Well, He will do that one day. That day is coming. But it wasn't going to come on their terms. The Lord never did things. On men's terms, he doesn't now and he won't ever. God has a plan. And God's plan is far more noble than we can possibly imagine. And as Isaiah said, God speaking, since heaven is higher than the earth, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways higher than your ways. Well, these people, and who knows who was mixed up into the crowd, maybe some devoted followers for all I know. But this crowd generally is misguided. We know this because just a few days later, most of the same crowd is not yelling, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they yelling this time? Crucify Barabbas. Send us Barabbas. And crucify this other Jesus. It's basically the same crowd. So, In essence, what I can take from this is that these people believed that the long-awaited ruler of the world was finally showing himself. He was, by the way. But not in the way that they thought. He was not going to set up an earthly kingdom in which the Jews would rule the whole world. In fact, Paul Penley, a Christian writer, aptly explains it. He says... The political autocrat is what people might want. But Jesus said God was not really interested in that kind of king over a kingdom in Jerusalem. 
To be quite honest, Jesus did not fulfill the messianic hopes of his Jewish contemporaries, but rather dashed their messianic dreams by redefining the path and purpose of the Messiah. We miss this point, and we can miss what Jesus was all about. Now, make no mistake about it, the Lord will rule and reign the world. I believe that he will actually rule and reign from Jerusalem. I believe the very same prophet, Zechariah, who prophesied Jesus entering on what we call Palm Sunday, also prophesied that when Jesus returns, he will light down on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split right down the middle. And the Lord will rule the world from Jerusalem, and he will. But it won't be an autocratic human institution upon which he sits or throne upon which he sits. He won't use human government and it won't be because of human power and might and our ability and or right to subjugate everybody else. Now don't confuse this with me flipping over what you know of me and my reputation in my belief that we ought to fight for liberty, we ought to fight for proper government, our representative republic, is probably the best form of government that's ever been on the face of the earth. And I'm not retracting any of that because while we're Christians here, we're supposed to be salt and light. And government does have the power to make men's burdens light or unbearably heavy. And the Bible has much to say about human government, and I believe Christians ought to be involved in it. And I believe we ought to know what God says about it. It's God's invention after all. So I'm not suggesting that God doesn't believe in human government having instituted it. That would be a contradiction. I'm not suggesting that the Lord is not interested in us fighting for justice and fighting for liberty, if not for ourselves, for our children, our grandchildren. But understand, ultimately, the kingdom that the Jews were looking for can never be established with human power. And the kind of authority that they wanted... It's just kind of king of the hill mentality. We want to be at the top of the hill. We've been at the bottom of the hill. Now it's time for us to be at the top of the heap. We want to run the world. Now, maybe mixed in with that was an Old Testament understanding that God had given them the law and God had chosen the Israelites as the conduit through which to pass all of His truth. I get all of that. But I'm convinced that these people were really wanting what... Penley uh, says they were wanting. They wanted an autocratic government and they thought this was the man to do it and he's finally going to show his hand. In fact, what they really wanted is what you'll find throughout the Old Testament in passages like Psalm 17 where Solomon says, Rise up, O Lord, comfort them, overthrow them. By your sword deliver my life from the wicked, from mortals by your hand, O Lord, from mortals whose portion in life is in this world. May their bellies be filled with what you have stored up for them. May their children have more than enough. May they leave something over to their little ones. That's the kind of psalm that these people would have been quoting and believing that Jesus was coming to establish. Now let me give you more proof of it. When Jesus starts talking about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, what does Peter do? Well, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33 tells us that Peter said, Oh my gosh, Jesus lost his mind. And look what he says in verse 32. 
And he said all this quite openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, get this in your head. You've got Peter, of all people, rebuking the Lord? Well, what it shows us is that Peter was thinking just like these people yelling, Hosanna. He thought that somehow the Lord had come to not only establish righteousness, but to use the Jewish people in this autocratic rule of the world. And so Peter is trying to set the Lord straight. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't say that he turned and looked at Peter, although it could be that he was looking at Peter and the other disciples. But it's obvious that Jesus wanted to make sure that the other disciples got it. Get behind me, Satan. Now he's speaking to Peter. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter, get this in your head. That's not the kind of kingdom I have come to establish. Now there's more proof of it. In the course of time... A couple of brothers, we call them the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came forward to him and said, we want to be on your right hand and your left when you establish your kingdom in all of your glory. Now they understood that he really was the Messiah. Don't misunderstand them, but they still had these two concepts merged together that the Lord had primarily come as a righteous king, the creator, but he's going to rule the world and set up a kingdom and put the Jews at the top of the heap again. And so they're simply making the crest that when we finally do establish the government, Lord, we'd kind of like to be your vice presidents. We would like to be on your left and your right, which is a pretty bodacious request, obviously. Well, Jesus then says, you do not know what you are asking. Because, see, they don't understand the kind of kingdom that he's come to set up. They don't realize that this time around, rather than a throne, it's going to be a cross. And rather than a golden crown filled with jewels, it's going to be a crown of thorns. He said, you don't have any idea what you're asking. You want to be vice presidents of that kingdom? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Now what cup is he talking about? Well you remember, in the Garden of Eden he prays about this cup. So much in turmoil that he's sweating blood. The capillaries under his skin have ruptured and the blood is oozing out with the sweat. And his sweat pours and he's literally sweating blood. He's red with blood on his clothes. It's a medical condition that's rare but... It happens. And he's saying, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass. What cup? Well, it wasn't just death. And by the way, always remember, Jesus is the only person who ever chose to die. He said, oh, no, wait just a minute. Somebody commits suicide, they're choosing to die. No, they're only choosing when they die. Every human is going to die. It's an appointed unto men once to die. After this, the judgment. Jesus is the only human who ever walked the planet other than Adam before he fell in the garden who would not die. He chose to die. But I'm convinced that's not the cup 
or not what was in the cup that bothered him so much. It was the corruption of mankind's accumulated sin and rebellion and the ultimate separation from God the Father. That was it. It wasn't the thorns. It wasn't the nails. No one wants that. But that's not what it was. So when he says to these two brothers, you able to drink that cup? Are you able to get the baptism I'm about to get? Of course, they go on to say, oh, yes, of course, of course, of course. Because, see, they didn't get it. Now, these are disciples who don't get it. Now, what do you think the odds are the crowd yelling, Hosanna, didn't get it? How about John the Baptist? Forerunner of Christ, great prophet. Jesus said, among all those born of woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is in prison. He starts to get second thoughts. He's figuring out, well, my gosh, if he's going to set up a kingdom, he better hurry because all of his viceroys are being knocked off, including me. And so he sends one of his disciples to the disciples of Jesus to ask Jesus, are you really the one or do we need to look for another one? Now, Jesus then gives John evidence out of the Old Testament. John, knowing the Old Testament well enough, signs of the Messiah that anybody with a spiritual eye could see. And John said, okay, okay, Lord, I get it. I get it. Now, the point I'm trying to make is this. It is very easy in the human condition, and not just in the first century A.D., it is very easy in the 21st century A.D. to get it wrong. To get Jesus wrong. Let me illustrate. Dr. Bennett was my mentor, as many of you know. I've mentioned him over and over uh, throughout the months that I've been here because I just have utmost respect for him. He's at First Baptist Fort Smith. And he used to tell about going and visiting with this lady. And he was talking about her spiritual condition. And she kept saying, well, my God would never. And then she'd fill in the blank. And my God wouldn't. And then she'd fill in the blank with a different thing. And my God wouldn't. And Dr. Bennett said, finally, I just became very irritated at this woman. Because it's obvious she was wrong. And I fi- he finally said, lady, your God probably wouldn't. The problem is, your God is not the God of the Bible. Your God is a figment of your imagination." But she thought she was a Christian. Now let me jump forward to just a few weeks ago, a couple of months. I ran into an old friend, an old acquaintance, used to attend our church over in Yukon. Hadn't seen him in a long time. He, he was kind of sporadic in his church attendance, but that, you know, that doesn't necessarily define everything about him. So I'm visiting with him, had a really friendly visit. And finally I got to asking him how he was doing spiritually. And he said, you know... I'm following the God of my understanding the best I can. I said, now, how you doing spiritually? I said it again. Well, I'm following the God of my understanding. And I asked him, what if he misunderstood? What if the God of your understanding is not the God of the Bible? And so I told him, I said, look, Rick, make sure that the God of your understanding is the God of the Bible. Because there's a way that seems right to men, but the end is destruction. I'm amazed as I 
continue to live this life at the people who ought to know better who don't seem to get it. For instance, Dr. Mark Bird, who is a, uh, a part of AIG ministry, even though he's not employed there, he's actually a professor at God's Bible School in, in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, wrote an article that was posted on, and it's still available on the AIG Answers in Genesis website. And, and in the article, he quotes a survey. He says, one survey showed, the article, by the way, is entitled The Real Jesus. One survey showed that though 80% of Americans would call Jesus the Son of God, only 40% believed that He was God. And only 40% believed He was sinless. Now, I want you to, Think on that a moment. You say, well, I mean, you know, I I, kind of get where he's coming from. Well, then you're confused and deceived as well. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is not God, then we've got a huge list of problems. First and foremost, that makes him a liar. Secondly, how could just a mere human die for the sins of the world, and then when you add to it that only 40% of those who believe Jesus is the Son of God believe that He was sinless, well, then how could a sinner die for sinners? How could that satisfy a righteous, holy God? So in essence, most people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God are just as lost as a goose, spiritually. They're lost in their sins. Scott Harris, pastor of the Grace Bible Church in New York, said this. Kind of a long quote, but I think you need to hear it. He just says it right. He says, Many people claim to know Jesus Christ, but as you talk with them, it does not take long to figure out that it is not the Jesus of the Bible that they describe. Their God is an old grandfather type who can see no wrong in his grandchildren regardless of what they do. And their Jesus is emasculated. Their Jesus can be ignored, treated rudely, and even cursed without consequence. To be sure, the Jesus of the Bible is kind, gentle, merciful, gracious, and loving, but He never excused sin and is plainly described as the coming judge who will execute vengeance with wrath on all the ungodly. You cannot believe that Jesus is who He claims to be and give such utter disregard to the commands He gave. Yet we find people who have lifestyles described in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, uh, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers claiming to be Christians. And you'll hear these people and they'll say, well, you know, My Jesus understands me. My Jesus, well, their Jesus might, but he doesn't happen to be the Jesus of the Bible. Now you say, well, how does this fit, Dan? Well, go right back to Palm Sunday, the original. The Messiah they're celebrating is not the Messiah they wanted. Now they're celebrating the Messiah they they wanted, but it's not the Messiah Jesus is coming to be. They're completely misguided. This is how, just a few days later, they can flip and start yelling, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. And you've got to know some of those people were in both crowds. Probably a large number. When Ken Ham was with us 
not that long ago. In fact, the picture was taken. He was standing right there. This is our pulpit and uh, the auditorium. Uh, Ken has taken a strong stand. Of course, it's, it's cost him in some ways. God has rewarded him. But on his website, he wrote an article not long ago entitled How the Twenties, and he means the twenty-somethings, people who are in their twenties, are changing America. And he said, of those now in their 20s who attend church regularly, I want you to get that part, attend church regularly. Now listen to what they believe. Over 40% state they are not born again. 35% state the Bible has errors or they don't know if it has errors. By the way, this is coming, as you can see, out of a 2014 Pew Research study. Close to 90%, so just a little under 90%, attend or attended public school. Over 20% left school believing the Bible was less true. Over 45% said they were not taught to defend their faith at Sunday school. 45% say either homosexual behavior is not a sin or they don't know if it is a sin. 40% believe gay couples should be allowed to marry and have legal rights. Now, we're talking about special legal rights. We're not talking about equality under the law. We're talking about special rights. 20% believe there are other books other than the Bible that are inspired by God. Well, pray tell, what are they? I'd like to know which ones they are because might shed some light on some important issues. And 65%, now you understand, all of this is from people who attend church regularly. You say, well, this is the 20-somethings. Friends, they are our brand new parents and are going to be the leaders in our churches quite soon. 65% believe if you are a good person, you will go to heaven. Now you understand that believing all of this defines these people as unbelievers. Not by Dan Fisher's terminology, by the New Testament or the Old Testament's terminology. How is it that we can know so much and get it so wrong? To illustrate the point even further, last August, it was late August, I think somewhere around the 28th of last summer, uh, last summer in August, David Nasser, this is his picture, this is him interviewing a number of pastors via the internet. So it was a panel, but they weren't all there in person. He was asking about the theology of churches either remaining open during the COVID uh, shutdowns or shutting down. One of the people that he interviewed was Andy Stanley. Now, by the way, David Nasser is on staff at Liberty University, just so you kind of know, and he's an evangelist and all this kind of stuff. So he's interviewing Andy Stanley about the fact that Stanley had said he was not going to open his church until 2021. Now, you understand that this was stated way back in 2020. Now, I realize we're in 2021 now, but you understand he basically shut his church down for at least almost a year, at the very least. So he was being asked by Nasser about this, and I want you to listen to part of the conversation, and it's not taken out of context. You can go on and listen to the interview if you want. Stanley says, I keep hearing, now that's people that believe you ought to be in church, them say over and over, the Lord commands us to meet. The Lord commands us to meet. And then Stanley says, he does not. Now, is Andy Stanley completely ignorant of, he- well, of Hebrews 10.25? Of Hebrews well, no, I don't think he is. 
You see, Andy Stanley has become one of those red-letter guys, I fear. Meaning that the only part of the Bible he believes you can trust is that which is printed in red. Thus, only the so-called sayings of Jesus is all he refers to. He's already said the Old Testament should be left behind, unhitched from the Old Testament. And I don't think he cares a whole lot for Paul either. So I don't think he's ignorant of Hebrews 10.25. I just don't guess he believes it's binding. See, he, he apparently separates what Jesus said from what Jesus' apostles said under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a real problem. Now, I'll bet he doesn't disagree with anything on like giving to the church and the ministry and, you know, ordaining people and who's qualified. I mean, you know, come on. He goes on to say, he commands that we lay down our lives for our friends. Well, that's true, but that's completely immaterial to what he's talking about. That we do what's best for others. I totally agree. But what does that have to do with shutting the church down? Of course, what he's arguing is you're endangering people. Has anybody heard of a church that remained open that's just losing members left and right and the church is about to die because they've had to bury everyone? No. Now, all churches have probably had people gotten sick. I had it. COVID-19, that is. And most churches have probably had a few people who have died. We have. Unfortunately, I think those people would have gotten sick and died whether we met or not. And no one can prove where they got the disease. How in the world do you do that? Our hearts break for those who are sick and for those who die, and we must minister to them. But what if the church over the centuries, not just in the 21st century, but over the centuries, had closed up doors and shut down business every time an illness swept through the world? You and I probably wouldn't be Christians. The church would have seen. So anyway, Stanley goes on to say, Jesus never played the God card. Now this is getting down to the real gist of his problem. He never said, okay, by the way, I'm God. Now he's quoting out of Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says that Jesus did not consider equality with God to be something cling to, you know, all that. And I understand, I get all that, but, but he's, he's going way beyond that. And he's saying that Jesus basically didn't claim to be God. Well, what about the demons knew he was God? You remember when Jesus saw the man, uh, different ones possessed, the demons would cry out and say, Son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? They recognize that he's God. How about the Pharisees who ended up getting Jesus tried in a kangaroo court and, and crucified primarily because he claimed to be God? I mean, things like before Abraham was, I am. That's not a claim to, to divinity. What about Jesus forgiving people's sins? See, the Pharisees knew that that was claiming equality with God because they said only God can forgive sins. Right, and Jesus is claiming to be God. What about when he said, my, I and my Father are one? I mean, come on. We don't have time this morning to prove it, but how in the world does the pastor of a church of multiplied thousands of people, the son of a prominent Southern Baptist pastor, Charles Stanley, say that Jesus never played the God card and never claimed he was God? Well, if he didn't, then I would suggest that Andy Stanley might want to reconsider his calling and maybe look at another career. So then, what kind of Messiah was Jesus? What kind of a Messiah have you embraced? Because that's critical. Because all of this stuff is not just happening 2,000 years ago, friend. The same problem is, is here today and we're dealing with it. So very quickly, I want to show you what kind of a Messiah he was. Number one, he was a confrontational Messiah. 
Right after his triumphant entry, you know what he does then? You can see it in verses 12 through 13. He goes into the temple, creates a whip, and runs them out of there. Now, by the way, he hadn't lost his temper. I've heard people actually say, well, you know, the Lord just got upset and he lost his temper. No, he's the Lord of creation. There's no sin in him. There's no losing his temper. He is eaten up with righteous indignation and is judging those in the temple. Not just the money changers and those who are selling uh, blemished sacrifices, but the whole stinking system. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but on any given day, there could be as many as 15,000 people in the temple complex. Now, I don't know how many were there the day that he did this, but how easy do you think it is to run off 15,000 people? Now, for me as a pastor, it's pretty easy, but, but, you know, I'm talking in a different kind of way. You're talking about a man when he cried out. You know what they heard? They heard the voice of the Almighty is what they're hearing. And they grabbed their stuff and got out of there. And we would too. Now, that's not the kind of Jesus that I think Andy Stanley preaches. How about when they came to him and said, By what authority do you do all of this? And he said, Well, I'll tell you, when you tell me by what authority John the Baptist baptized, he said, Well, we can't do that because if we do that, and they say, Well, he, not by God's authority, the people will stone us because they think he was a prophet. And if we say, Well, he did it by God's authority, then he'll say, well, Why didn't you believe him? So he said, Well, we can't tell you. And then look what Jesus said, Well, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you anyway because I'm meek and mild. He said, Well, then I won't tell you either. That's the kind of Jesus that he is. How about when he looked at them? Now, guys, this is all right after the triumphant entry. Notice it's Matthew 21. Truly, I tell you, he said to the Pharisees, tax collectors and the prostitutes, that's IRS agents, and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Do you realize how offensive that was? Verses 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Now, see, they want it, but not the kingdom he's come to set up. It's going to be taken away from you, and it's going to be given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. By the way, he's saying this to all the religious leaders. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. Confrontational. Even as he approached Jerusalem before he rode into town on the donkey. And by the way, remember the donkey is the symbol that kings of old would use when they wanted to communicate to the people as they entered they were coming in peace. If they were coming for war, they'd ride a stallion. That'll be important here in just a moment. Jesus chooses a donkey because he did not come to set up an earthly kingdom and to fight. That's what the Jews wanted. So as he stops and weeps over Jerusalem, I want you to listen to what he says about Jerusalem. You remember he says, you that stoned the prophets, all this kind of stuff. And then he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Do you realize how harsh that would be to hear if you were a faithful political Jew. Well, you just told him that they're going to burn the Declaration of Independence on City Square on Monday morning. It's the same. 
We're going to put the U.S. Constitution in the paper shredder. That's the same deal, but it's even greater. So he was confrontational. But he was also some other kind of Messiah. He was controversial, which kind of goes hand in hand with confrontational, doesn't it? I'll never forget when I first went to UConn, that's when they wouldn't let, uh, they started not allowing prayers at ball games. And so I was fighting the, the town over it. And I was fighting the city, uh, the, the, the school board and all this. And we were having meetings and they were trying to come up with some kind of compromise. And I'll never forget when the school attorney just looked at me and said, Mr. Fisher, I don't understand why you're being so controversial because Jesus was never controversial. <laughs> and I said, well spoken by an idiot attorney. I didn't actually say that. I said, what kind of Jesus have you read about? See, it's the Jesus that he's created. It's this caricature of my God won't do this and my God won't do that and and I'm following the God of my understanding. Friend, it doesn't matter what your understanding is unless it's in line with what God says. So, once all this starts to happen... Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, which he does not long before the triumphant entry. The, the Pharisees get together. I don't have time to read this whole passage, but they have a little powwow, and they huddle together, and finally Caiaphas speaks out and said, look, it'd be better that one guy die for the country than for all of us to lose our jobs. And they decide that they're going to go after him. And look what it says in verse 53. So from that day on, they plan to put him to death. Now, that's what you do to somebody that's controversial. Look at these other passages. Matthew 21, verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests, the Pharisees, heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. John 12. Although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. In other words, they were secret service Christians. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. And so right after that, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to do it publicly. You're talking about controversial Now today, pastors avoid controversy and confrontation at all costs. You've heard Paul and me talk about that over and over and over. It's been proven. Barna has shown that pastors, they're so afraid of hurting the attendance and the offerings, they'll water down or ignore anything they need to. It just doesn't matter. Just as long as they don't lose the number of tea times in the week that they have scheduled, as long as there's no trouble, as long as nobody goes walking out, none of that stuff... Keep those cards and letters coming right on in, folks. What kind of Messiah was he? Well, he was compassionate. Listen to what he begins to say right after his triumphant entry, Palm Sunday. Now my soul is troubled. That's not the Jesus you hear about today. You hear about the grinning Jesus. The ooh Jesus. The ha huh, Jesus. I love everybody, Jesus. Uh, it doesn't matter. I just love you. I just take you in. I, I just like you are. Just, you know, we sing the old song, Just As I Am. Well, only if we're willing to allow us to make us what we ought to be. He may take us just as we are, but He doesn't leave us that way. 
My heart is troubled, he says. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Now you're beginning to see the compassion. Not the, I'll tolerate anybody or anything and it's all okay, Jesus. No. The one who came to sacrifice himself for sinners. It's the only way. It was the only way. So yes, he was a compassionate, loving Savior, all right. But he was also a conquering Messiah. Oh, not in the way that crowd thought. But friends, I'm telling you, there's coming a day. When he rode in Jerusalem that day, it's on a little donkey. But it's very interesting, and I don't have time to read this whole passage, but you probably know it. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, where when he comes back the second time, it ain't a donkey. It is a white stallion. Well, that's the, that's the horse of war. But holy war. Righteous judgment. And then you read. He's clothed in a robe dipped, robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. I just thought of that, that robe. You know, sometimes you get people to call you and you, you want to think that you're something and you realize you're nothing because they don't even know. I had a guy call me the other day from a publishing house. You're thinking, my, they may want to publish my book. He said, yeah, we're very interested in the black robbed book. And I said, okay, well, yeah, thank you. Robed, you moron. Robbed has two B's. Idiot. Oh, no, yeah, I didn't say that. I didn't do any of that, but. Robe dipped in blood. The armies of heaven wearing fine linen from his mouth comes a sharp sword. He strikes down the nations. He rules with a rod of iron. Now we're talking. But it's a righteous kingdom. It's one from heaven. Not from the bottom up. But from above down. That's different. I often wonder if some of these modern preachers even know this passage. Because the Jesus that they preach is an emasculated sissy. I mean, really. He's a sissy. He's He's not appealing to men. He's not a appealing to anybody who is masculine. He's almost effeminate. Even the, uh, the uh, uh, paintings that we have of him from uh, uh, the period of time, what's it called? Renaissance, thank you. They paint him as looking effeminate on purpose. Do you really think a hardened carpenter looked like this beach boy from San Diego? How many fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jews have you ever met? 6'3". Come on! It's a sissy Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that he's just all war and fuss and fight and he doesn't love us. I don't mean it like that. But understand, we are just as capable of picking the wrong Messiah as they were. And wanting the wrong thing. And then last, what kind of Messiah is he? Well, he's a condemning and consoling Messiah. Two passages and then we'll begin to wrap it up. Matthew 21, back to Matthew 21 again. I'm showing you all of this flows right out of the triumphant entry. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? I'd like to say that to Andy Stanley. Have you never read the scriptures? 
You understand, inflection means a lot. Now, Jesus could have said it like this. Let me switch the slide here so that you you see this. Come on, work with me, computer. You know, all computers are going to burn in hell. I just want you to know that. And those who designed them, too. I just want you to... Okay, now, here's the passage. Jesus could have said it like this. Now, have you never read in the Bible about the love that I came to share? Or he could have said it like this. Have you never read the Bible? Inflection means everything. I guarantee you that's how he was saying it. Have you never read this? Come on, guys. I would have loved to have just been a fly on the wall and listen to him talk to his disciples. You, Peter, you really believe that? Well, you're the devil. Get out of here. See, I'm telling you, make it real life here. Stop living this clouds and white robes and plucking harps and eating Twinkies and drinking Dr. Pepper stuff. Come on. It's a real deal. Have you never read the Bible, you idiots? Come on. Maybe you wouldn't have added the idiot part, but the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is amazing in our eyes. In other words, you don't get this. If you'd have read the Bible, you'd get it. See, that's why he gave the answer to John the Baptist. He did Because John, he trusted and read the Bible. And John knew what the signs of the true Messiah would be. And John said, okay, that satisfies me. I got it. See, people that know the Bible don't have these dumb ideas. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And it will crush anyone on whom it falls. You think that's the Jesus that Andy Stanley preaches? No. No. All he could talk about with David Nasser is how we're just closing the church for the benefit of our community. For the benefit of our family. Well, Andy, did you ever consider how many people died while your church was closed and went to hell who might have been saved had you cracked the door open and actually cracked open the book and had the guts to preach the truth instead of this caricature Jesus that you've dreamed up, that you've unhitched from the Old Testament? I would assume I'm not going to ever be invited to Andy Stanley's house. I... <laughs> now that's the condemning Jesus. But then he also knows how to console. Hebrews seven twenty five. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're on the right side of this stone, it won't crush you. But if you're on the wrong side of this stone, friend, it's going to pulverize you. Now that's just the truth. One of these days, we're going to stand before the tribunal. I don't know what it's going to look like. This artist didn't either, but I think he did a pretty good job. And you will either have Jesus standing doing this, or you'll have him doing what he's doing there. Which do you want? Jesus' hand on your shoulders, He brings you in close and is your advocate 
with the Father. Or if he's standing in front of you, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the Jesus. So what kind of Jesus did they want? What kind of Messiah were they looking for? Different one than the real one. See, you can't have the palm branches without the thorns. They go together. And that's the Jesus that the New Testament offers to us. Make certain you're not following the God of your own understanding. You better make sure you're following the God of God's Word. You better make certain that you know the real Jesus and not some caricature. You say, Dan, what do you mean? You better make sure that you know. Listen, Paul writing to a church in a place called Corinth, and I want to, in just a few weeks, I'm going to preach a sermon on this where I have uh, test questions that you can ask and give to people to find out whether or not they're really saved. I think it's a message we desperately need to hear in this day and time. I've actually taught the lesson here once since I've been here, but I want to preach a sermon on it. But I want you to listen to this verse, and then I'm going to pray. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So that's twice he said it. Do you not know yourselves? That's the third time he has said it. That Jesus Christ is in you? Question mark. So three times in just those few words, he says, Are you sure? Unless indeed you are disqualified. I'm telling you, friends... It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of God. We better be sure. You better make sure that you've got the right Messiah. That you don't have some caricature that you've created in your mind. Because you may believe it with all your heart, but friend, you can believe it all you want to. But unless it's the real Jesus, you're going to be just like those folks on Palm Sunday. And you'll be yelling, give us Barabbas in just a few days.